Hello, Darksiders. I hope you're all well. Before we get into today's story, I need to tell you that today's show is the penultimate episode of Season 1. I'll be taking a short break to refresh the old grey matter. But don't worry, Darkside will be back soon enough, bringing stories of righting the wrongs and changing laws to your lovely ears. I do have to warn you that today's episode contains graphic information about systemic racism. Listener discretion is advised. So with that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story takes us to Oakland, California, United States, an urban cultural mecca that sits across the bay from San Francisco and stretches up to the redwood-covered rolling hills of Northern California. In the early 20th century, Oakland grew in population as migrant workers moved to the area, unable to afford the exorbitant housing prices in San Francisco. As such, Oakland became, and still is today, a city that is rich in cultural diversity. It was a Sunday morning and Fred Koromatsu was up on Skyline Boulevard with his girlfriend, Ida. They had spread a blanket on the grass and were soaking up the warm sun, singing along to the music on the car radio and looking out over the sun-kissed San Francisco Bay. They were cuddling on the blanket when all of a sudden the music was cut short by a news announcement. As Fred listened to the news, he quaked with fear. He knew this news would have huge ramifications for him and his family. And he wasn't wrong. In fact, this news was going to trigger a series of sanctions that would ultimately become one of the biggest human right atrocities and worst civil liberties violations in United States history. And it would send Fred on a historic test of this liberty that would become a lifelong journey to right the wrongs of one of the most infamous decisions ever made by the Supreme Court of the United States. Not just to him, but also to thousands of others. A president that still looms over American law today. This is Darkside, and I am your host, Zeus. So what was the atrocity that Fred fought? And what had Fred heard on the radio that triggered these sanctions? And ultimately, Fred's journey for justice. Hmm. Let's find out. Strike up the music, the band has begun. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. It was December 7, 1941, and Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor, the American naval base in Honolulu, Hawaii. 
the attack took 2,400 souls and injured a thousand more. On hearing the news, Fred jumped back into his car, he took Ida back to her house, and then he raced home. His whole family were huddled around the Wylers, trying to listen for further news. His parents and four siblings. At the nursery, my parents, they were all around the radio listening. They weren't saying very much. My mother was crying, my father was just disgusted. They listened in silence, and when the news broadcast was over, his mother turned to them, ashen-faced, and said, What will happen to us now? And all of them couldn't answer her anguished question. You see, Fred and his four siblings, Hiroshi, Harry, Shirosi, and Joe, were second-generation Japanese-Americans. His parents, Kakusaburo and Kotsui Koromatsu, had immigrated to the United States from Japan in 1905. They had laboured on the land when they first arrived, but had, over the years, saved enough money to buy a little plant nursery. They grew flowers and vegetables that they would sell to local residents in Oakland. They eked out a modest existence and went on to have five children, all born in the United States. But throughout their lives in America, the parents and children alike had been circumspect to varying degrees of racism. In the first couple of decades, after Katsubaru and Kotsui had arrived in America, they had regularly suffered verbal and physical abuse from the white citizens of the state. This hatred seemed to be constantly stirred up by the newspapers at the time, and they'd seen that when tensions between the two communities would reach boiling point, the government would step in with some form of sanction that aimed at appeasing the white citizens and penalising the Asian communities, especially the Japanese communities. And with each sanction, it made it harder for them to work, travel and live normal lives. Kakusaburu and Kotsui had no idea why so much hatred seemed to be aimed at their community, as opposed to other ethnic groups in the state. But when the racism and abuse had reached those almost boiling points, they had contemplated returning to Japan, as they didn't want their children to grow up with this level of animosity. But they also remembered what had driven them out of Japan in the first place, hunger and unemployment and they also didn't want to subject their children to that environment. It was a no-win situation. However, they did genuinely love America, and despite the pockets of racism they endured, they saw their new homeland as a wonderful place of opportunity, prosperity, and hope. They considered it their home. A second-generation Japanese Americans started to reach adulthood in the 1920s and onwards, including Fred, they saw a shift in the racism. It was less direct, less vicious, less rabble-roused by the media. But it was still there, slightly more discreet, just laying, rumbling, under the surface. Fred and his siblings had also experienced racism throughout their lives, but like their parents, they too loved their homeland. Fred's siblings, like many of the first and second generation Japanese Americans, just accepted the discrimination levied at them. They worked around it, moved past it, and didn't let it get to them. They just wanted a peaceful life. 
But Fred... <sighs> Fred struggled with the bias. He considered himself an American first and foremost. He was patriotic to his country. He loved his country. And Fred really had a hard time coming to terms with the fact that his country didn't seem to love him as much as it did its white citizens. But Fred didn't believe in violence, and so he never reacted to racism he received. It bothered him, tremendously, yes, but he didn't respond to it, as he knew that that would make it worse. Instead, he tried his hardest to fit in, to assimilate, and to prove that he, and all the other Japanese Americans, were just like every other citizen in the land. Fred was the third child and son of Kakusaburo and Kotsui, and as such, less pressure was put on him to take over the family nursery business when their parents retired. That duty was left to his two older brothers. So, this allowed Fred more freedom to blaze his own trail in life, and to find his own path and career. And this suited Fred down to the ground. Plants had never been his passion. He was quite happy to leave that to his brothers. No, Fred wanted to join the army. It was his dream to serve his country, to prove that he was a true, loyal citizen. And as soon as he graduated high school, that was his plan. However, whilst he was a senior at Castlemont High School in Oakland, a US Army recruitment officer had come to the school and handed out flyers to the boys in his class. As Fred eagerly held his hand out for a flyer, the officer told him that they had orders not to accept their kind. And Fred's heart plummeted. To join the army had been his one dream, and with his bias-tainted words, that hope was dashed. After high school, he wasn't sure what career path to pursue now that his hopes of joining the army had been blitzed. So, he worked at his parents' nursery to earn some money whilst he figured out his next move in life. But, in 1940, with war raging in Europe and pressure being put on the USA to assist their allies overseas, America began a military recruitment campaign. All eligibly aged men in the USA were sent a recruitment letter. It wasn't a conscription request, just a request for manpower. Oh, heck, yes. Finally, his dream was going to come true. He eagerly took the letter down to his local army recruitment centre and asked if he could join. But... He was rejected. Why, I hear you ask. Well, according to the paperwork he was given, it was based on the fact that he had stomach ulcers. Huh. But Fred didn't have any stomach ulcers at all. He was a healthy, robust, keen-sighted, eagle-eared young man. But Fred knew from his lifetime of passive racism the real reason why he wasn't drafted. And he was once again left deflated. But still, he wanted to do something for his country. He knew war with Germany was on the horizon and he wanted to give everything he could to his homeland to ensure his victory when the time came. And so he became a welder at a shipyard, helping to construct warships. Meh, it wasn't the soldier's uniform line dream he'd envisaged, but at least he was doing something for his country. And he actually really enjoyed the work. 
He was good at it. But he was only at his position for a few months before he was fired, simply because his face did not fit the profile of the type of person they wanted to employ to support the US war effort. And so, back to the nursery he went until he could figure out his next move. His one consolation throughout all of this was his girlfriend, Ida Butano, a second-generation Italian-American. They had been high school sweethearts, and their relationship had only continued to blossom after school. Fred absolutely adored Ida, and he had plans to marry her one day. However, their relationship did come under some scrutiny. Whilst Fred's parents were accepting of the relationship and welcoming to Ida, Fred didn't receive the same congeniality from Ida's parents, whom felt that people of Japanese descent were inferior and unfit to mix with white people. But Ida didn't let her parents' prejudice affect her relationship, for she doted on Fred just as much as he did her. However, as Fred and his family all huddled around the wireless on that Sunday morning, 7th of December, 1941, his mother's question, What will happen to us now? hanging in the air like a heavy storm cloud. Fred, too, was wondering the same thing. America was about to go to war against Japan, and with the decades-old ingrained xenophobia that the Japanese-American communities had experienced, Fred wondered if the racism and hatred would escalate again, what retribution they would receive. But his one beacon of hope was his profound belief in a fair and just America. She wouldn't turn her back on them. This was the land of the free. Yes, the Japanese communities had received much prejudice in the past, but things had been getting better over the decades. Okay, it wasn't where it should be, but he knew he had it a lot better than his parents had. But his parents hadn't been citizens at the time, and he and his siblings were full-blooded American citizens, born and raised here. So surely, America would protect their own people. Hmm? Well, Fred was right about one thing, at least. Following the attack, age-old racial tensions between the Japanese-American citizens and the white American citizens resurfaced. Fueled by the media who stirred up this unrest with rabble-rousing headlines of a potential attack on mainland America by the Japanese. This spilled over from the broadsheets into racial attacks against the Japanese on the streets of California, as residents feared that if there was an attack on their coast, that the Japanese population would rise up and fight alongside the invaders. Shops refused to sell products to the Japanese-American people, Signs saying they weren't welcome were plastered throughout neighbourhoods and in store windows. People refused to trade or buy from Japanese communities, and many were fired from their jobs. It made it twice as hard to, to live here decently and to prove that you're more American than Japanese. As tensions were growing on the West Coast, pressure was mounting on the East Coast. President Roosevelt was coming under heavy lobbying from key government officials to do something about 
the Japanese problem, as they coined it. This lobbying was spearheaded by Carl Bendetson, the Undersecretary of the Army. Prior to the war, Bendetson, who came from Washington State, was a major in the United States Army. In early September 1941, he was sent to Hawaii to look into how to intern enemy aliens in case of war. In his report, he noted that there were 134,000 American citizens of Japanese descent in the islands, and he was worried that good Americans might give these Japanese the benefit of the doubt if war erupted between the two countries. Just so we're clear, by good Americans, the bigoted Bendetson was referring to the white citizens. Bendetson ended up becoming the so-called, and self-professed at the time, but later denouncing the title, architect of the internment of Japanese Americans. After Pearl Harbor, Bendetson, using his report from his time in Hawaii and adopting a fear-filled rhetoric, drummed up support from other key officials to back his idea to intern the Japanese Americans. In particular, John DeWitt, who was General of the Western Defense Command, in charge of protecting the West Coast of America, threw his weight behind Bendetson's idea, and the two levered enormous pressure on the President to permit internment of Japanese Americans. Colonel Bendetson wrote all of the arguments for the internment that General DeWitt presented to the War Department. Bendetson simply said that because Japanese Americans belong to an enemy race, their internment could be justified. <laughs> okay. Enemy race. <laughs> you want to hear some irony? Okay. Bendetson's grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. Realizing the anti-German sentiment was growing in the country, with World War II raging in Europe, Bendetson changed the spelling of his last name to make it sound less German and he would tell people that he was a descendant of a Danish lumberman who had come to America in 1670. So, he too was a second-generation citizen with an ethnic lineage that wasn't favorably seen at the time in America. So he changed his backstory and name to fit the preferred image. But yet, he did not afford the Japanese-Americans this same courtesy. Instead, creating a macabre internment plan to incarcerate an entire ethnic population whom fell into a similar unfavorable ethnic lineage as himself. What a Machiavellian malignant maggot. However, Roosevelt was reticent to Bendetson's suggestions. You see, in early 1941, long before the attack on Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt who wanted the full picture of the potential threat from Japanese Americans, either spying or insurging, commissioned Curtis Munson, the special representative of the State Department, to carry out an intelligence-gathering investigation on the loyalty of Japanese Americans on the West Coast. His report, which became known as the Munson Report, concluded that Japanese Americans are loyal and would pose no threat. He even actually wrote that there was no Japanese problem on the coast. And in fact, there was far more potential danger from communists. In the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, 
with mounting national fear and anti-Japanese sentiment, coupled with the unyielding lobbying from Benderson and DeWitt, Roosevelt commissioned a second report, which was conducted by Kenneth Ringle, an officer in naval intelligence. Ringel's report echoed that of the Monson report. Japanese Americans were not a threat to U.S. national security and would not turn against the U.S. if the war reached American shores. Both reports concluded with the same recommendation, that Japanese Americans should absolutely not be interned in camps. But, by comparison, Benditson's report recommended that anyone with a single drop of Japanese blood should be interned. Hmm. Hmm. So, why then, with two reports in hand, one pre-Pearl Harbor and one post, both advising the lack of threat from the Japanese Americans, would Roosevelt order the internment of these citizens? I hear you ask. Well, Roosevelt was not only under pressure from the baleful Benditson and the duplicitous DeWitt, but he was also under enormous national and political pressure to support measures against Japanese Americans from members of his own party, and from the governor, senators, representatives, and white citizens of the West Coast. And with 1942 being an election year, and California carrying 55 electoral college votes, the most of all states. Roosevelt couldn't turn a blind eye to this pressure if he wanted to win the upcoming election. And so, on February 19, 1942, he capitulated. On February 19, 1942, FDR issued Executive Order 9066. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a great man who did great things during the Depression to get us out of that, signed Executive Order 9066. This nation was swept up in war hysteria, racism, and the failure of political leadership. Executive Order 9066 made it legal to relocate Japanese Americans from the West Coast. <sighs> America, the land of the free, really had just turned on its own people. When 9066 was authorized, the Japanese American population on the West Coast were terrified. Surely, their own country and government hadn't just turned on them. But notices began to appear on lampposts informing that anyone of Japanese descent had to check in at a registration centre to be assigned a number. A number that would identify which camp they would be sent to. Military presence in every town and city increased. Homes were raided, key figures in the Japanese-American communities were arrested, and tension hung in the air, like a thick cloud, waiting to drop. But Fred didn't think this order would apply to him. I thought the exclusion order would be only for aliens and those that were born in Japan. I didn't think that the government would go as far as to include American citizens. But it did. 
and Fred was soon finding out that it also included him. However, outside of the notices and the raids, nothing really seemed to be happening. Numbers were assigned to families, but no dates were being given for relocation. There seemed to be a state of impasse. And the reason for this is that it was taking the military an age to compile lists of names of those to relocate and also to build assembly and detainment centres. And so, in March 1942, Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9102, creating the War Relocation Authority, the US civilian agency responsible for the forced relocation. Funds and resources were allocated to the authority, and the process soon sped up. Within days of Order 9102, the Western Defense Command designated military zones in Washington, Oregon, Arizona, and of course, California, all areas with high Japanese-American populations. These areas were considered strategic locations for a Japanese attack. Within weeks of 9012 coming into effect, Japanese Americans in the aforementioned states received a letter ordering them that they had to check in to their nearest assembly camps on a certain date. There were ten camps in California and one each in Arizona, Oregon and Washington. These were only holding camps until they were permanently relocated to a detainment camp. As these camps were only for temporary stays, they comprised of tents and tar paper barracks, which did not hold up to the cold nights and rainstorms. Despite supposedly only being temporary, it took a great deal of time to build the detainment camps, and so many of the Japanese Americans remained at the assembly camps much longer than anticipated. In fact, it actually took almost three years to move everyone into the detainment camps. Whilst the Japanese Americans were frightened by what this internment would entail, there was a collective, silent acquiescence amongst the communities that they wouldn't rally against the order. They were loyal Americans, and they wanted to serve their country. And if this is how their country judged their loyalty, they would show their servitude and follow orders. And this was also the attitude of the Kuramatsu family. All that is except for Fred. It just burned me up that uh, this happened. And, and uh, I was still determined to prove that and still I'm an American. After uh, the evacuation notices were posted on the telephone poles, I decided to uh, go ahead and go back to work. Fred protested the proposed Japanese incarceration, the way he had fought back against racism all his life, by simply ignoring it and going on with his normal life. The Koromatsu family received their order to relocate, dated for May 9th, 1942. His family began packing up their belongings, but Fred refused to pack anything. Since Executive Order 9066 had come in, he had been wrestling with his conscience. Yes, he was a law-abiding, loyal citizen, and he wanted to prove this to his country but he kept coming back to that one word, citizen. He was a citizen. 
He was born here. And what was happening to one ethnic sect of the citizenship of the USA? It just didn't sit well with him. And he couldn't adhere to something that felt so constitutionally wrong to him. His family begged Fred to come with them, knowing full well that to not capitulate to the order would be a violation of the law. But Fred still dogmatically refused. And it wasn't just because of his silent protest that he refused. Oh no, he had another reason. Well, I know I couldn't take my girlfriend with me, so um, I decided maybe we should try to sneak out to Nevada to get away from, from this. He didn't want to leave Ida, and she didn't want to leave him either. And so, on May 9th, Fred bade his family a tearful goodbye as they made their way to the assembly camps. They weren't happy with his decision, but they supported him. Now, obviously, war was raging over in Europe, and Germany had been sabre-rattling at the US, threatening her that if she assisted the Allies, which she was very discreetly, then they would send U-boats to attack the US East Coast. Mussolini, in league with Hitler, supported this move. So, the USA were now at war with Japan and under threat from Germany and Italy. So, obviously, it stands to reason that they would also round up and detain those citizens of Italian and German descent, because they too could be capable of espionage and sabotage. Right? Hmm? Wrong. Outside of a few German and Italian citizens whom were marked as of particular concern, these two groups were left untouched and undetained. Why? I hear you ask. The Japanese Americans, they were singled out just because they, you know, quote, looked like the enemy. They looked like the enemy. <laughs> hmm. Did blonde-haired, blue-eyed Deutsch descendants living in the United States not also look like the German enemy? Did olive-skinned, dark-haired Italian descendants not also look like the Italian enemy? So, why weren't these people also detained? Why was the focus solely on those of Japanese descent, I hear you ask? Well, there's a reason why. The internment of the Japanese Americans was the culmination of almost three quarters of a century a systemic bias and racism towards those of Asian origin, but most specifically, towards those of Japanese origin. The resentment grew in magnitude with each passing year, burrowing itself like a worm into the social fabric of American society, especially Californian society. I've already alluded in the story so far to the racism that Fred and his siblings and family had endured during their time in America. But I really have skirted around how bad it was and why it was so targeted to this one group of society. To fully understand just why and how a country would turn on its own people under the guise of looking like the enemy. Well, we would have to do a really deep dive into this history, which I have to tell you. It's a shocking one. However, it is also long, 
and therefore, for the sake of brevity and continuation of the story, I will not include it here. I will, however, include it in a brand new addition to the podcast. Dark Shadows This episode should also show up in your feed. If you'd like to listen to the history first, please go ahead. When you come back to this episode, you'll be able to pick up where you left off and you'll have a full, comprehensive picture. Or you can listen to it after this episode to gain more understanding. It's entirely up to you. But I'm, now, going to go back to Fred. We'd left off with him saying goodbye to his family as they set off for the Assembly Centre on May 9th, 1942, with Fred refusing to go because he considered himself an American first and foremost, and also because he didn't want to leave Ida. He thought he could sneak out to Nevada to get away from the roundup. However, there was a travel ban on all people of Japanese descent, and so this was out of the question. He had no choice but to remain in Oakland. Ida and Fred managed to get an apartment, and Fred found a job with someone who was willing to turn a blind eye. His aim was to make enough money so that he could try and escape somewhere east with Ida, even though it was forbidden for him to travel. Every morning, Ida would apply makeup to his face to try and make him look more Caucasian. He changed his name to Clyde Sarah and claimed to be of Spanish and Hawaiian heritage. But, despite all these measures, Ida didn't think his guise was working and she was worried that both of them would end up in jail because he'd broken the law. And she'd abetted him. So, she asked him to get eye surgery, to put a fold in his eyelids to make him look more Caucasian. But Fred wasn't really on board with this idea. Yes, he wanted to be able to live as every other American citizen, and not in this constant state of fear. But, well, he liked the way he looked, and he didn't want to look like everybody else. But Ida convinced him. However, when he got to the doctor's office, doubts plagued him. Time after time, he walked up the steps, only to change his mind when he got to the door and walked back down the stairs, only to change his mind again when he got to the bottom. In the end, his desire to protect Ida overruled his doubts, and he finally opened the door to the doctor's office. I had a broken nose from playing football, and I never had it fixed, and um, said he could do pretty good work on me. He just took my money, that's what it was, actually. There wasn't anything changed, except I didn't have a broken nose anymore. (laughs) So... His nose had been fixed, but his eyes remained the same. And whilst disappointed that he'd wasted money that he'd saved to try escape with Ida, he was secretly pleased that his eyes hadn't changed. He'd always liked them. On May 30th, 1942, Ida asked Fred to meet her on a street corner when he got out of work. He waited for her at the corner but there was no sign of her. And whilst he waited, he realised 
he didn't have any cigarettes. And spotting a convenience store on the other side of the road. So, like a darn fool, I went across the street to the drugstore, and someone recognized me, I assume, because when I came back and I was standing there for another five minutes, then the police came. And they looked around and looked at me and said, Do you see any short uh, Japanese person around here, Asian? I said, No. He looked at me and says, Well, let me see your identification. By that time, the two MPs came in the military. And he says, We have to take you to the city hall. Fred had been rumbled. He was taken to the San Leandro police headquarters, where he was questioned by the FBI. Fred, already knowing that he was in big trouble, decided to confess everything. The refusal to go to the camps because he was an American-born citizen, the changing of his name, and even the botched surgery he had undertaken. And he told them about Ida. By now, Ida was his fiancée, and Fred figured that this intended matrimony might be his one saving grace, his one get-out-of-jail-free card, because they wouldn't send her to the camps with him. So they maybe, just maybe, allow him to remain free if he was intended to marry a white American woman. And so, Ida was called to the police station. When we got caught, they called her in too. Yeah. And um, I seen the police chief talking to her for quite a while. It was a small police station, and Fred was still being detained in the lobby when Ida arrived. He wasn't allowed to speak with her, but Ida and the sergeant were in a side office, just out of earshot so he couldn't hear what they were saying. However, he watched intently at their lengthy discussion. And at one point, he saw their conversation ended abruptly, with Ida, who had been hunched over in a chair, sitting abruptly upright. She stared at the sergeant for a few seconds, then rose from her chair, and without another word to the sergeant, she left his office, walked past Fred without acknowledging him, and out of the police station. So, that was the end of it. I never did see her again. Hmm. He'd risked everything for her, and she'd left him in his hour of need. Because Fred had resisted the Executive Order 9066, a federal offence, he was sent to San Francisco Federal Prison. He languished in prison for several months, broken-hearted for leaving his family, losing Ida, and being locked up because he tried to exercise the rights of the American citizen that he was. But then, one day... One day, um, I got a call from the guard and told me I had a visitor, and I didn't know who it was, you know. I knew all my friends were in camp or they were in the military. And sat there in the reception room was this strange man waiting for him. He didn't know him didn't recognize him. But as soon as he saw Fred, he stood up and introduced himself as Ernest Bessig, 
He was from New York, and he was with the ACLU. And Fred thought that he was sat in front of a church leader. He'd never heard of the ACLU. Ernest laughed and explained, no, 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 he wasn't a church leader. He was the director of the Northern Californian branch of the American Civil Liberties Union, an organization that defended and preserved the individual rights and liberties guaranteed to every person in the country by the Constitution and the laws of the United States. I believe in principles. And certainly I believe that all persons without distinction are entitled to the support of the Constitution. We tried to find a legal challenge to the internment, but of course, in order to do that, you have to have a test case. You have to find somebody who is willing to have his case carried through the courts up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we were on the lookout to find a case of that kind. It wasn't easy until I heard of Fred Korematsu's case. And as Fred ticked all the boxes, Ernest asked him, would he help them? Fred pondered for only a second before responding. Yes. Bessig set about filing the necessary paperwork to start the trial against the United States. He also tried to get Fred out of jail. But the military said, oh heck no. He's a federal criminal. They did, however, permit him to join his family at their internment camp in Topaz, Utah. Fred was not happy about being interned. After all, it was the very thing that he had fought against. But he was looking forward to being reunited with his family and other members of their former community. However, when he got to the camp, he was shocked. The people weren't being detained in barracks, as he'd assumed, but converted horse stalls, lined up, one beside the other. There was a big door for letting horses in. There's a gap about 12 inches down below. There's no uh, floor, it's just dirt. So the wind was blowing through there, and there's cracks all around the walls. And there's a light bulb up there, one light bulb in, on the ceiling, and that was it. And, and I went there and I lied on the cot and I said, gee, jail was a lot better than this. Fred found conditions at the camp sparse. Their stalls had little furnishings outside of some straw for a bed and a coal-burning stove. They had to use a common bathroom and laundry facilities, but hot water was usually limited. The camps were surrounded by barbed wire fences patrolled by armed guards who had instructions to shoot anyone who tried to leave. Although there were a few isolated incidents of people being shot and killed, as well as more numerous examples of preventable suffering, the camps generally were run humanely. Well, as humanely as a camp can be that is holding hostage to innocent people. To add to this, he did not get a warm welcome from his family or the other internees. News about Fred and Ernest's test case had made the news. And this news had infiltrated into the camps. And so... People realized who Fred was. He felt very lonely there at Topaz. He was working digging ditches. Uh, they were building a hospital. And uh, the, the crew was very cold to him. Some people had this 
terrible feeling that Fred thought he was different than the rest of us Japanese Americans, and so they sort of shunned him. You see, Fred represented everything that they didn't. The other interns wanted to abide by the law, prove they were honest, good, decent citizens that could be trusted and wouldn't betray their homeland. And to them, Fred was a rebel in the ranks. He betrayed their loyalty to serving the United States and their silent acquiescent movement to show compliance as a form of proof that they could be trusted. And so, they shunned him. Fred really was truly alone. But even this imposed solitude did not dissuade him from his cause. Their interment was wrong. The government was wrong. Executive Order 9066 was wrong. And he wanted to prove this on behalf of all the Japanese Americans residing in the USA. Fred's case became so toxic within the camp that eventually his brother pulled together a group of people to discuss the pending trial and to give everyone an opportunity to air their voice and to ask Fred why he was doing this. But... They were discussing it to themselves or in little groups. And I stood around and waited for someone to speak. But no one actually came out to speak to me. And no one said a word to him. Essentially, they'd made their minds up and Fred's opinion wasn't important. They didn't want him to fight the case. They didn't want any more disturbance. They'd been through enough already and they wouldn't support him or help him. They called him a self-styled martyr. And so, Fred was on his own. To do this by myself, I just wondered if I was doing wrong or or maybe putting them in shame by uh, bringing the issue up again. Uh, because the Japanese people, they, they're peaceful people and they, they like to leave things alone if they can because they were in enough trouble as it is because of this Pearl Harbor attack and the country blamed them so they have this sort of a guilty complex even though uh, uh, they had nothing to do with it. But Fred decided that his case carried value and worth. Without the case, he had no way of proving to the American government that he and the other Japanese Americans were honest and loyal to their country. But above all, they were citizens. He was an American citizen. He'd never harmed another person or potentially been a threat to the USA. And he believed he was wrongfully interned. He believed they were all wrongfully interned. The real significance of Fred's case is that it raised, for the first time, the central issue. Was the internment itself constitutional? And Bessig believed that it wasn't, and neither did Fred. The trial started in mid-1943. Bessig argued that the rounding up of thousands of Japanese Americans, American citizens, without due process, which means without a trial, was unconstitutional and was tantamount to racial discrimination. The judge listened as Bessig presented his argument, and without taking leave from the bench to take time to consider, he announced his decision. He was in favour of the government. They'd lost the trial. 
Fred was disheartened. But Besig wasn't. He'd known they were going to lose the trial from the onset. So why drag Fred and the case through the courts when he knew they were going to fail? I hear you ask. Well, because Bessig knew he had to play the system in order to get to the right decision makers. That trial was going to be one of many they were going to fight and fail, and Bessig knew this. But these trials were a means to an end. Bessig was aiming for the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, because it was the only court that could overrule a government decision, the only court that could hold the government accountable and the government needed to be held accountable for interring their own citizens without provocation or due process. Our case depended on the U.S. Supreme Court. We recognized that at the outset, because they would recognize there's no basis legally for this discrimination. It's a denial of due process of law. And so, Fred, Bezig, and their case traipsed through the courts for a year and a half with fail after fail in their wake, until finally their case made it to the Supreme Court in October of 1944. They were finally sat in front of the right decision-makers, the right lawmakers, whom could right the wrongs that had been done to the Japanese-Americans in the trial of Korematsu versus the United States. However, nine Supreme Court judges were appointed to the trial of which all but two had been placed there by Roosevelt himself. The lawyers on behalf of the government had submitted to the Supreme Court the final report on the evacuation and internment of the Japanese people, constructed by General DeWitt and heavily influenced by Benderson. This was the report that had been submitted to Roosevelt and was the catalyst behind Executive Order 9066. The government's lawyers set forth their argument for why the executive order and the government decision to intern the Japanese Americans was perfectly legal. The government had two basic arguments. One was that as a matter of military necessity, that is the prevention of espionage and sabotage, the evacuation was required. The other was that it was limited to Japanese Americans because their racial characteristics, what one of the government lawyers said, they belong to an enemy race. And now it was Bezig and the lawyers from the ACLU to put forward their case to the Supreme Court. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the foundation of our argument in this case is that there has been no military necessity for evacuation at the time of the order requiring Mr. Korematsu to report for evacuation. We base this on the total lack of evidence of military necessity in the final report of General DeWitt. The report itself contains no evidence of any such acts by Japanese Americans, not a single one to support these baseless assertions, the prevention of which was the purported rationale for the issuance of Executive Order 9066. So basically... The government's lawyers were saying that Executive Order 9066 was legal because the country was at war. So, for the safety of the country, and as a military necessity, they had to protect against espionage and sabotage. And as they were at war with Japan, they had to ensure that they contained potential saboteurs within those whom were descendants of their enemy. Ergo, 
the Japanese Americans. Bessig and the ACLU were coming at the case from two angles also. Firstly, they stated that the internment had violated the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which states, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Secondly, they stated that in the actual report submitted to Roosevelt by DeWitt that led to Executive Order 9066 being enacted, there was no evidence at all in the document to suggest that Japanese Americans were a threat to the country. None whatsoever. Therefore, Executive Order 9066 was not legal as a product of war and was not a necessity of war because no threat had been posed. Well, it seems like a no-brainer to me. With no evidence to suggest the Japanese-American people were a threat, and with there being a clear violation of 14th Amendment rights, the government had clearly been in the wrong to intern them. Right? Hmm. The trial took almost two months, and on the 18th of December, 1944, the Supreme Court had made their decision. Compulsory exclusion of large group of citizens from their homes except under circumstances of the direst emergency and peril is inconsistent with our basic governmental institutions. But when, under conditions of modern warfare, our shores are threatened by hostile forces, the power to protect must be commensurate with the threatened danger. To cast this case into outlines of racial prejudice without reference to the real military dangers which were presented merely confuses the issues. Korematsu was not excluded from the military area because of hostility to him or his race. He was excluded because we are at war with the Japanese Empire because the properly constituted military authorities feared an invasion of our West Coast as they decided that the military urgency of the situation demanded that all citizens of Japanese ancestry be segregated from the West Coast temporarily. We cannot, by availing ourselves of the calm perspective of hindsight, now say at that time these actions were unjustified. The decision of the trial court is affirmed. With a vote of five to four, Fred had lost. It seemed like such an open and shut case of racial discrimination. So just how on earth had this happened? Well, remember how I said that seven out of the nine Supreme Court judges had been placed by Roosevelt? Yeah. Some members of the court felt that it was their patriotic duty to support the president in this case without regard to the Constitution. Needless to say, Bezik and Fred were shattered by the verdict. Over the years, this branch has handled at least eight cases in the U.S. Supreme Courts. We lost one case. And the shocking thing is that we lost the case of racial discrimination against Japanese. That's a shocking thing. All the trials, all the alienation from his friends and family, all the fight and toil the case had taken... For Fred, it felt like it had all been for nothing.
we lost in the Supreme Court, and I just couldn't believe it. It just seemed the, the bottom dropped down. He felt as though it was his fault that they'd lost. The other Japanese Americans had been right, and he'd been wrong. He should have acquiesced quietly, like they did, in order to prove that he was a loyal citizen. Instead, by representing as an offended Japanese American, he had essentially, in his mind, dragged his entire ethnic group through the courts, in front of the whole country, and lost. He'd lost them their freedom, and now also the last vestiges of dignity afforded to them by America. By making a spectacle out of them, all because he decided to chase this false illusion that the term citizen applied to everyone, and not just those whose faces fit. He felt he'd widen the gap even further between white American citizens and the Japanese American citizens. He felt that he'd prove to the country that their faces really didn't fit the requirement of true citizenship. Fred might have lost the case, but throughout the two-month trial, it had received much media coverage, and this had raised much speculation across the country about the validity of the internment. If the U.S. government could do this to one ethnic group, would it do it to other groups? An undercurrent of negative murmurs was rippling through the country, and so, realizing the potential for backlash and uprising from other ethnic groups. The government announced that all relocation centers would be closed by the end of 1945, even though the war was still ongoing with Japan. The government made this announcement on the 18th of December, 1945. Does that date ring a bell to you? Hmm. Well, if not, it was the very same date that Fred lost his case against the Supreme Court. Hmm. Convenient, huh? The camps did start to close at the end of 1945, but just like it had taken an age to set up the camps and relocate the Japanese Americans at the beginning of the internment, so too did it take a great deal of time to close the camps down. The last camp didn't close until March 1946, which was some six months after World War II officially ended between Japan and the USA. On the eighth of May, nineteen forty-five, six months after they could no longer be deemed as an enemy threat under the guise of war. Life for the Japanese Americans was very hard after their release. There was still a strong undercurrent of systemic racism aimed at them. So when they returned to their homes, they more often found that they had been repossessed, including all of their personal possessions. The jobs they'd once held had been filled in their absence, and they found it hard to find other work. They literally had to start all over again. As hard as it was for them all, it was much harder for Fred. As I said, his case had received much media attention, so he was known wherever he went. And because he didn't quietly acquiesce like the other Japanese Americans had, and quietly gone into internment. He was deemed a troublemaker, and no one wanted to hire someone who caused trouble. On top of this, because he'd lost the case, he was still considered a convicted criminal, and getting work when one has a record 
is even harder. As part of the series of executive orders doled out by Roosevelt back in 1942, one included a decree that people of Japanese descent were not permitted to move west. Thus, many of the released detainees migrated to Midwest cities looking to start afresh. Fred's brother, Harry, had been among those to move east and had moved to Detroit after being released. After receiving a letter from Fred outlining how hard he was finding life, Harry invited him to come join him in Michigan and was able to secure work for Fred as a draftsman. It is whilst he was in Detroit that he met a young lady called Catherine in 1946. They married in the autumn of the same year and settled down in a suburb of Detroit. After his Supreme Court loss, Fred was contacted many times by the media to give interviews, but he always declined. He had been deeply wounded by the court's decision. He considered it legalised racism, and that ruling summed up just how the United States viewed him and other Japanese Americans. Separate and not equal. He loved his homeland, still, and always would, but he now had it in black and white from the Supreme Court that his country did not love him back. The decision wounded him to his core, and all Fred wanted to do was leave the pain behind, be forgotten by the passage of time, and find happiness in the here and now, with the people that did see him as equal and to live an unassuming normal life. And Fred did just that. He and Catherine had a very happy marriage, and went on to have two children. They did eventually move out to California in 1949, when the ridiculous executive orders were somewhat lifted, and they settled down back in Fred's home city, Oakland. And that's it. Fred lived out his days in anonymity and peace with his family finding solace and restoration and allowing time to heal his wounds of injustice. So, right about now I can hear you all saying, Hang on, this isn't a dark side story. Where's the crime that changed the law? Where's the positive born of the negative? The protagonist never disappears into the ether without a battle to right the wrongs put upon them. Well, my dear Darksiders, you would be right. Fred did want to live a life of anonymity and peace, and to forget his painful past. And that's what he fully intended to do. But, some 23 years after the Supreme Court's decision of betrayal, a young girl would learn about Fred's story in 1967. And this would start the journey that would bring Fred out of obscurity. And, eventually, after 30 years of silence, Fred would finally speak publicly for the first time about what had happened to him. And this would be the opening for this quiet, gentle man to once again resume his brave battle to right the wrongs that had done to him and to the other Japanese-American citizens in the land of the free that had incarcerated them. As you've probably guessed by now, this is going to be a two-parter. I know, I know, you really don't like them. But there is so much to Fred's story 
it cannot be contained to one episode. However, to make up for the lack of a proper episode last week, part two will be aired next week instead of in two weeks. But I do have to tell you that today's episode is also the penultimate episode of season one of Darkseid. I'll be taking a little break to recharge the old grey matter and do some deep diving to bring more stories to your lovely ears. I'd like to thank my lovely friend, Huey Tui, for contributing her voice to today's story. Kem un bantoi. I also have to make an apology. As you know, I like to say thank you to those of you that have left me a lovely five-star review. Well, it turns out that Apple iTunes only shows country-specific reviews, and for four months now, I've only seen English reviews. I've now figured out how to see the international reviews, and well, it turns out I've missed quite a few of you, so I do apologise. But now I've remedied the issue, I'd like to say a very belated thank you to Autumn, NZ, Fleda Now, Amy Liz 53 and Miss Lynn 5. Thank you so much. And again, my deepest apologies. And as I'm in a thanking mood, oh yes, it's that time of the show where I'm probably calling your granny a goat herder in Gaelic rather than thanking listeners from their respective countries. Yes, it's on to the country thanks. So this week, I'd like to thank Japan. Konnichiwa, arigato gozaimasu. I thought it appropriate given today's topic. Zimbabwe. Mohora watakako. And Denmark. Hi, oktakskal to have. Yeah, your granny's going to hate me, isn't she? But as always, you know I'm trying my best. If you like today's story, or this podcast in general, would you mind leaving a review at Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast? You would be making one little podcaster whom has tasted the very first morsels of freedom after almost a year of lockdown and tears very happy. Oh, and freedom tasted an awful lot like a crisp pina grigio while sat in a pub beer garden on a warm Sunday afternoon. <sighs> Delicious. So yes, please, leave me a review. Go on, I know you want to. Also, why don't you come join me on Facebook and Instagram? Just look up Darkside. Love to have you along for the ride. So with that said, please don't forget to stay safe, stay alert, Sue's over and out.